Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of people studying computational neuroscience. I am Grace. I'm Connor. And I'm Josh. And the topic for this episode is brain size, um, how it differs across species and within species, and what that possibly means. So I think this is interesting as a topic because it's something that comes up as kind of fodder for popular science articles a lot. And I think it has some intuitive appeal that, you know, the size of your brain should say something about your usually intelligence, I guess, is the thing that it's correlated with or people assume that it's correlated with. So we'll get into some of the ways in which that is kind of true, but all the caveats and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, so this is, just to be clear, this is kind of related to some other issues, like what social or evolutionary pressures sort of cultivate intelligence, and what about brains specifically enables intelligence? I think we won't really get into those issues much in this episode. Well, no, we won't, because people don't have answers to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that is part of the problem of this study, this, like, quest to kind of, like, figure out well, how are humans so intelligent and special? Is it because of our brain sizes? And then we're like, oh, wait, what do we measure when we are trying to talk about brain size and, like, what's actually important and what could possibly explain how humans are different? And it relies, I mean, kind of the whole, implicitly in the background, is kind of the assumption, I mean, it's a reasonable one, I think, that, humans are actually more intelligent than most or all other animals. Yeah, we can touch on that thing because, okay, especially lately, or maybe I've just come across it more lately, there's a sense of like, oh, other animals are intelligent. They just have different things Kinds that they're good of. Yeah, yeah and, and it's true. Like, I can't echolocate or anything like that. So, like, bats are better than me, and that way they're more intelligent than me. But It's kind of hyper-PC, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about this, but it's sort of the zeitgeist right now where... <laughs> yeah. In the olden days, people would look at animals and say, what's special about humans? And would say, oh, and it's Because it was obvious use. that there's something special about of humans. Of course, yeah. So. Oh, it's tool use, though, or it's language. And then throughout maybe the 70s, 80s, whatever, people found like animals that used tools in certain contexts or animals that used certain things that were kind of language-like in certain contexts. And so now, almost the sort of, yeah, in a very in like a way that's almost tied to political ideology or some sort of cultural ideology. There's a sense that like humans are what you would expect. Yeah, we're not we're, unique. We're well contextualized. Every animal animals. has their own niche that they excel at, and we just have ours. But ours does happen to be kind of like the entire planet for the most part. So I feel like we have set ourselves apart. So the yeah. thing about that is that we don't dominate underwater living. Okay. So I definitely, in a conspiratorial <laughs> way, like to imagine that dolphins are secretly more hyper, intelligent. More intelligent than us. And they just don't have, like, good limbs. And they're, like, really frustrated all the time, looking at us, being like, God damn it, if I had those fingers and stuff. I'd, I'd <laughs> There's an episode of The Simpsons about that. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's very convincing. Yeah, it's, pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty strong hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to get into the differences between animals that are on land, as well as some water-based animals. Uh, I guess we can start by kind of going over what things you could measure when you want to talk about brain size, because it's not so straightforward. Yeah, well, so okay, you could talk about volume. I, I, I wrote some of these down just because I wanted to, to think about them clearly. So, yeah. So, in addition to volume, there's 
the number of cortical neurons specifically, there's the total number of neurons in like all of the brain regions, including non-cortical regions. There's the brain size relative to your body size. So by brain size is often mass, I think, right? Not volume specific. So, so brain mass, let's say, relative to body size. And then you can also look at like, hypothetically, you can look at something like neuron count relative to, uh, to brain size. So like how many cortical neurons do you have relative to your brain size, which is brain mass, which is something like of density. It takes into account like the size of the neurons and like the other kinds of cells in your brain. Right. Because so uh, just like a basic overview, the brain has different regions. There's kind of like the uh, cerebellum, which is in like the back and the base of the brain. And it's not really what people think about when they think of a brain. And uh, people think of it as being related to motor coordination. And then there's the, like, main kind of cortical hemispheres that if you imagined a picture of the brain, you'd probably think of. Um, and so a lot of the stuff that we looked at was kind of looking at relative number of cells in those two divisions. And then there's also all the supportive cells that aren't neurons. They're, uh, like, glial cells that they do, like, they have immune functions and supportive functions and that kind of thing. So, yeah, so neuron count relative to the total number of neurons like the ratio of neurons to non-neurons in a brain is like another kind of thing you look at. And you could also look at, uh, as people tend to do, discrepancy from sort of expected levels of these ratios. So for example, like if you take a whole bunch of related animals like primates and look at plot of, you know, on one axis, one of these factors, let's say body size, then you look at like brain mass or number of neurons on the other axis, you know, maybe you might expect humans would deviate from this relative to other animals, which would say like relative to their body size, humans have like a really, really big brain compared to other related animals. That could be one thing you, you, you might look at. And you'd be like taking into account the fact that, you know, say for all primates, when you're bigger, you tend to have a bigger brain, but it's kind of like, do humans have an even bigger brain than you would expect given how big they are and how primate brains tend to scale with size of primate? Yeah. That's a, so that's a hypothetical one. We can, we can talk about this. So okay. that's what people call, right, encephalization. Well, the encephalization quotient. quotient. Yeah. Okay, so those are some of the ways that we could count or quantify brain size. So where do we want to oh, start? Oh, another one is um, something about, I, didn't, um, I think it didn't really get so mentioned in any of the papers we read. Anyway, the point is that um, another thing that people sometimes talk about is like connectivity. You, know, you can get into all these detailed measurements. Think people think things like, you know, how thick is your cortex or, you know, yeah, and the between areas, does that matter for whatever? Does like the co no. gross connectivity between areas matter? Number of synapses in the local area, this kinds of, these kinds of detailed things. And the fact that connectivity between areas usually means that white matter is involved because that's like the myelin covered part of the neuron that's going from one brain area to like a somewhat distant brain area more colloquially like the wiring is white matter yeah, yeah 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 so i feel like that's a reasonable thing to to talk about if you want to say like brain size is related to things because you can count or you could like measure the amount of the white matter as like a, a measure of brain size in a certain sense but then if people are going to get to the level of like well within an individual region there's like more connectivity like i feel like then you're just not talking about brain size anymore you're talking about kind of micro level wiring which is probably very important too but then you're not asking the question of how brain size relates to things. Right. So there's this overall question about what are the, the, the determinants of ability, probably cognitive ability, things about intelligence. And a sort of null set of hypotheses would be things related to crude measurements of differences between brains, right? 
And so that's kind of the idea. Some of the brain size or some of the measures of brain size we talked about are supposed to be the most kind of obvious differences between the brains of different animals. And so people would expect them to account for... dominant factors in the differences. And we can talk about what's implicitly meant by intelligence as well. I mean, for especially in like the early days of this kind of conversation, it was just humans are the most intelligent. So what makes humans different, as yeah, I so said? What if, and, and like they really were just looking for, in what sense are humans the outliers? Right, yeah. Just, what yeah. measures show humans as outliers? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you can also do actual testing on different species to kind of see what skills different species have or don't have. And there's things like self-recognition, like you put something on an animal's face and then see if it like notice it, notices it in a mirror and tries to remove whatever you put on its face because it can understand that the thing in the mirror is itself. And so there's that kind of like self-awareness as a measure of intelligence. There's social interactions that happen like natively in the animal groups is kind of considered intelligent behavior, tool use, these kinds of things. So maybe, I mean, if we, if we, yeah, we've kind of been setting up this implicit narrative, but so sort of historically people wanted to see what are the measures that, uh, that humans look different on. And it does appear to be the case that if you look at body size to brain size, humans have a relatively big brain relative to their body size for related animals. Yeah, if you plot the, the, the chart of that, humans are kind of off the line that most other animals are on. Although dolphins are not that far from humans in how far and, off and, the line and in the they sort are. Of, this is sort of the te- undergraduate textbook kind of presentation level. There is uh, a caveat to this, which is that animals, like specifically mammals that live in the water, because water is different than air, in terms of like things about how heavy, how, how hard it is to move. Like there's obviously like things float in water. So maybe there's a bit of a caveat that water mammals might have slightly different kind of constraints on them. And so they're maybe not directly comparable according to the sort of simplest version. Sure, it does seem like the better thing to do is to break animals up into their, you know, evolutionary like tree. Sure, that yeah. or like how, oh, like, sure, even more specific. yeah, the tree yeah. of evolution and comparing. Um, like how things compare. Because even if you do this body mass versus brain mass plot, you basically get kind of two parallel diagonal lines. And the, the lower one, meaning that the, the brain mass is kind of low for the body mass, is things like eels and reptiles and that kind of thing. And then you have like a higher line that captures a lot of mammals and birds. So it is more fair to not kind of lump all creatures together and, and compare, but to break it down and see what trends emerge there. Okay, so then, but so that that was the historical version, and then sort of more recently, people like Herculano Hozel, she's a researcher in Brazil, have attempted to look at different factors that maybe contextualize uh, animals, uh, like hum- humans amongst other animals, and see what what other factors might differ. And she kind of has a sh- a strong hypothesis or or sort of theory that really. Neuron count is the most important factor. And so she kind of downplays the fact that humans have large brain to body, saying that that's maybe not a good measure. And like neuron count, specifically cortical neuron count, is uh, maybe the most important thing. And uh, like, you know, she basically says something along the lines of, you know, the human brain has just the number of neurons and non neuron cells that you would expect for a primate brain of its size. So for her, it's less about the body size. And she's just saying primate brains, including human brains, have similar, let's say, density of neurons. 
And so the human brain isn't an outlier in that sense. It isn't an outlier in the sort of density or neuron count sense relative to its size, the brain size. This is not contradicting earlier claims that the it was high relative to body size. Yeah, the brain is bigger than expected from body size, but the number of neurons is not more than expected for a primate brain of that of size. Of that size. Yeah. Which is somewhat, it's a sort of weaker statement, but it, there's a sense in which that that's a different perspective from which the human brain is not an outlier. To me, when I come to this thing of, I mean, I didn't do any neuroscience in undergrad, so I'm kind of naive about it. When I come along, I always wonder, it's like, why are people intelligent? Is it just because we have a lot more neurons? It seems like a very reasonable kind of... Once you know that... Once you know, I mean, I say no. Once you think that neurons... This is very much the central dogma of neuroscience, that neurons are the core computational <laughs> elements of the brain, then it's like, yeah, presumably having more neurons makes you more intelligent, right? Yeah, but so, there, I mean, there's, there's caveats to that, of course, right? Like, as you pointed out, connectivity or something about, like, synapse density could affect intelligence, and so there are other factors, and I think people aren't totally clear whether the number of neurons, I mean, we, we obviously we don't know at this point, right? But it's not clear yet whether the number of neurons is maybe the dominant factor, or if something about the sort of pressure with which those neurons are used, so like how like how much do we saturate the usage of the neurons that we have? Sure. And so having a, so the, the sort of classical version, I think, is that having a large number of neurons or a large brain relative to your body size says your, your body, for what you can support, for the energy your body takes in, is really prioritizing its use of its brain. But, like, the thing is, there are examples of animals that have weirdly large brains in a variety of ways that are kind of clearly not intelligent, but they might be kind of relatively intelligent, right? Sure. More myriad fish, for example, have, like, very large brains relative to compared to, like, other fish of similar sizes, right? Okay, so do you specifically study this fish? It may be unfamiliar to many people. So Whatever, there's some... Give, give, a, give a quick overview. More myrids are little electric, weakly electric fish. They're um, these kind of funky fish that have... Um, there's two types of them. They live in Africa and Central America, different or South America, so they're two different classes. Um, they live in those two different places, respectively. And they create weak electric fields that they can use for communication and for electrosensation, which is kind of you know analogous to echo echolocation in um, bats. But the point is just that people think that those fish are ethologically interesting, sort of unusual animals for for fish of their size, kind of, and they do correspondingly have they kind of show a variety of interesting behaviors and abilities, and correspondingly they do have quite large brains, um, and Specifically, they have, by I think they have the largest cerebellum compared to brain size and also compared to body size. I think any animal, I put that comment with sort of error bars, but that's somehow some to some extent true. A very large cerebellum. So this thing about like things about efficiency and so on, you know, might you can imagine that they're related to like relative intelligence. It seems because just to me, it always this encephalization quotient thing is always like, oh yeah, we have more, we have a bigger brain. Then expected, given some positive relationship between body size and brain size, but but like let's not forget about the fact that we're just bigger and therefore do have a much bigger brain. So, you know, so it's kind of there is a slightly second order feeling to that thing, which I think might be to me was confusing when I started thinking. Yeah, about so it. like it's it's a it's a confounding correlation in a sense, like because humans just are bigger, 
we have bigger brains, and then we also have bigger brains maybe for other reasons. Yeah. But maybe we just are more intelligent, right, because we're bigger or something. You know what I mean? Like, it could just be that, right? So then we're, we, are this, we are outliers on this curve, so it's like an extra thing. So I, I, I want to clarify that we were talking about how humans um, are kind of not an outlier in the sense of how many neurons they have given the size of their brain, so kind of the neural density but it is the case that primates have a higher neural density than things like rodents. So there's a, a quote from this uh, Herculano Hoisel paper that we read. This means that a tenfold increase in the number of neurons in a rodent brain results in a 35-fold larger brain, whereas in a primate brain, the same increase results in a brain that is only 10 or 11-fold larger. So we can just fit more neurons into a, a given size of brain primates can compared to rodents and so that's kind of important so within, probably as even well amongst mammals rodents have lower brain density and then it also turns out based on so when when that paper was written i don't believe they had looked at dolphin brains but we, there's now a paper that has looked at dolphin brains that came out subsequently and uh it turns out that dolphins uh, so like dolphins and whales also appear to have lower neuron density than human brains, but it's not quite as bad as, as rodents. Brains. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that um, the number of like the, the supportive cells, the glial cells, and that they said that that doesn't change. The density of those doesn't change across um, species or or orders like uh, primates and versus rodents, or even across different brain areas that may have different neural density. So it's like, I mean, if you didn't already believe that neurons were the important part, then maybe the fact that glial cells, the number of those don't even vary across all these different things that might convince you further. But so, I mean, so the upshot of this, right, is that neuron density varies across subtypes of mammals, with primates having fairly dense brains, and... If you do counts, and this was not obvious, right, that turns out elephants have even, like, in just in terms of absolute numbers, fewer cortical neurons than humans. Right. In an absolute sense, they have fewer cortical neurons. They obviously they have, have a lot bigger, more neurons in total. They have bigger brains, and they have more neurons, which, I don't know, I mean, you say obviously, maybe that's obvious. It turns out that a lot of them are in the cerebellum, and they have really large cerebellum. So humans, for context, have about, the number that she gives is about 86 billion um, neurons in the brain. So the number you usually hear is something in the order of 100 billion. Um, 16 billion of those are in the cortex. So it is also the case for humans, I mean, we know this, not, maybe not everyone knows this, that most of your neurons are in your cerebellum. And the neurons in the cerebellum are quite small relative to the size of neurons. And the there are many, many tiny neurons in the cerebellum. And they're packed in pretty efficiently. Very, very dense, yeah. But the cerebellum is not the biggest part volume-wise of the brain. So it turns out then, so from this, uh, this uh, elephant suit, um, elephants have 257 billion neurons, so it's like, you know, three like times, times as yeah. many as, as humans, actually. But 98% of their neurons are in their cerebellum, which means that they only have 5. I say only, they only have 5.6 billion cortical neurons. Whereas which is like a third as many cortical neurons. Even though they have three times as many neurons. Yeah. So that's very, I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah, the distribution is... It's usually different, different yeah. If you, look at, if you look at an elephant, if you took up an image of an elephant brain, oh, yeah, they're, they're crazy. crazy. <laughs> Massive cerebellum, sickening. Well, you should mention, it'll be on the website, there's a good um, article in, and that's kind of a simple article in Nautilus um, about this work. And so this is interesting, and then the prediction hypothetically is like, oh, well, maybe whales and dolphins will actually also have fewer cortical neurons than humans. Right, because this sets it up like, oh, there's way more neurons in elephants, but elephants aren't more intelligent than humans, at least we don't think they are. It means things pretty clear. Um, but maybe that's the cortical neurons because we have three times as many. 
Yeah, we're still on the quest to find the thing that makes humans yeah. an outlier and thus the n- most number of neurons, maybe. In the cortex. In, so yeah, not number of neurons, because elephants have way more neurons, but maybe it's number of neurons in the cortex. But then there's this paper from Nina Erickson, who is a researcher of some kind. What kind of researcher? Who are these people? A neuroanatomist? <laughs> is that what they You could probably be that and study this. You could also just be um, a marine biologist, marine maybe. Biologist. So they did this neuron counting business in a particular type of dolphin called a long-finned pilot whale. So as far as we now understand, dolphins are whales? We're looking into this, dolphins are a subtype of whale. They're toothed whales, there are other kinds of toothed whales, sperm whales. Yes. So a pilot whale is a dolphin, and dolphins are whales. Yes. Um, It turns out that they have about... 37 billion neocortical neurons, which is twice as many as humans. So this clearly shows that it isn't just the number of neocortical. Assuming, you think, counter to my conspiratorial tendencies, that dolphins are not as intelligent as humans, um, that uh, it is not the number of neocortical neurons which determines uh, cognitive ability. Yeah, we could just, it, it would be simpler, we could say that we found... The, the measure that matters by just accepting that dolphins, dolphins are more are intelligent. Than <laughs> but so, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's sort of a weirdness here where, I mean, I, I don't mean to, like, impute a political agenda, right? But there's a sense in which, like, people, it's almost like, let's try to find ways in which, there's sort of a simultaneous thrust here, like, what are the ways in which humans are discrepant? Oh, maybe it's neuron count. This becomes, like, the new, like, way that humans are better than all of the other animals. At the same time, trying to, like, contextualize the other discrepant factors and like sort of downplay the brain to body size ratio where humans actually are pretty deviant. Yeah, but dolphins are also pretty deviant. Yeah, dolphins, but again, there's this weirdness. Uh, water. Of yeah, but that, water. I mean, I don't know. they still are though. It just was easier for them maybe to be that. They are deviant though. Like yeah, they do crazy things and we can talk about this a little bit. Like, yeah. They have very interesting social structures and whatever. People are studying, studying their behavior. So they yeah, no, I smart. think. They do smart. So. Yeah. They communicate. I think most people, if you ask them, like, what's the next smartest species, they may say dolphin. But I don't know if they could tell you why. I mean, I don't know why. I know that they do, like, the they pass the mirror recognition test. So do magpies. Oh, and they also, like, kill for fun. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> considered a measure of intelligence. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's some weird, yeah, ethological things there where the tent turns out that they, you know, for example, there's, I mean, we, I'm not an expert on this, so I, but the, there's, there's stories about them killing portises, which uh-huh. kind of look like neonatal uh, dolphins to some extent. That just makes it weirder. And so it's like they're play committing infanticide, which is a weird thing for... There's like some Freudian I bet you don't. <laughs> no, I mean, there is, in, in the ethology literature, people do look into the sort of unfortunate but real reproductive benefits of infanticide. infanticide. And you yeah. think this is like a cultural thing that maybe helped them to not have infanticide if they like no, let people not, to start No, it's not killing. necessarily, there's no, no, I wasn't trying to say any cultural thing, but I mean, for some animals, it is useful for, it, it, it increases the receptivity of females when the okay. males kill infants. So the, the, the females of those don't have the infants anymore. Don't have the yeah. infants and then they're more likely to try to procreate again, which... So they just, this is like, a misfiring then they think yeah, oh that's it's related a, to yeah. it could be the hypothesis I would like to know if 
in a dolphin's eyes, a porpoise actually looks like a baby dolphin. Like, you could, like, some outside observer might be like, a baby chimpanzee looks exactly like a baby human. Like, humans probably get confused all the time. <laughs> but if del- dolphins are really that intelligent, they probably don't think that porpoises are baby dolphins. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it's definitely hard to know. I mean, the mirror test thing is nonsense, no? I mean, it is the case that magpies pass the mirror test, right? I mean, the bird? Why does that have to be? Why is that? That doesn't. Birds are smarter than you think. No, well, what does it mean though? They they are recognizing that the thing in the mirror is them in some I mean, way. No, it's not. It can just be literally like you're doing the mapping correctly. You look at the thing, and you're like, oh, like when I move my limb, interesting things happens in so that. I think and I want to move my limb until it gets to that thing there. Yeah, so no, I think possible. it's about how. I mean, you, you, there's no. Maybe some animals can figure it out with a lot of training. I don't know the specific magpie case. I mean, it's clear a lot of birds die by running into like, windows. <laughs> yeah, but maybe magpies don't. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm mean, saying it's a bit more like the speed and uh, kind of nature. How quickly they, they figure it out. Yeah, it, is, is it mean, intuitive or do they have to be trained? Maybe this No, there, there are there are papers where they talk about like putting a marking on an animal and like rather quickly the animal can figure out the like like the first time this happens rather quickly they can figure out that it's uh, that that marking is on themselves. Okay. Um, but so, on this quest, which Josh claims is political, to now find the, uh, the, the reason why humans are so clearly um, superior, we have discovered, by reading scientific literature, that dolphins have more neocortical neurons than us. And, limited in our thinking as we are by our strong paradigmatic tendencies, we are going on the assumption that dolphins are not as intelligent as human beings, and therefore, it is not neocortical neuron number that determines cognitive ability. Mm-hmm. However, um, I want to point out something about dolphin brains, which I didn't know, which is actually which is kind of interesting. Which is that like they're actually their cortex is actually really different to ours. There are all these kind of gross architectural um, features of dolphin cortex, which is different to um, primate primate cortex. Like they have a different number of layers. So for context, primates when we look at like a, a human brain, for example. We see, we tend to see something like six layers, roughly. Yeah, this is just like the cells are kind of grouped in such a way that if you looked at them, you would say, oh, there's about six six divisions there. Yeah, and sort so of say they're layered. Clear. Kind of. So dolphins, I think, have a different number of layers. The distribution of neurons in the layers is very different. They interestingly kind of people make claims that they don't really have a layer four, which is weird if you know about primate cortex because in primate cortex you're supposed to think of layer four as like the input layer for like in, inputs yeah. from other areas to that piece of cortex, whatever. There's also a claim made, and I'm not exactly sure what this is based on, but that there kind of isn't a lot of, there isn't much prefrontal cortex. Oh, in. so we can use prefrontal cortical yeah, this, is, this is the new. This I mean, the new that's our way out. Is, yeah. the next so uh, hypothetically, something about the size of certain brain regions or specifically the, the size number or number of neurons in prefrontal cortex or something like yeah, that. So prefrontal cortex is kind of considered, you know, where all the interesting stuff happens if you want to think about complicated decision-making and, uh, like, sense of self and that kind of thing. Sorry, I shouldn't say prefrontal. I should say like frontal, 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 frontal Frontal, yeah, okay. So just, like, the, the front half of the brain, roughly, upper half or so, <laughs> is where... Very we should be clear about this, right? Dolphins and whales are being, like... Okay, bats are flying mammals, right? Which is ridiculous. You sound high right now. They are mammals. Bats are mammals that fly. That to me is crazy. Anyway, but then, so dolphins and whales are goddamn 
mammals that like live underwater. But so they went back in, right? I mean, yeah, they're related. I mean, they're related uh, to. You like, mean evolutionarily? They, they went back. Went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they went back. In. Okay. They did. They did. They went back. Yeah. In. At a we, very long time scale, yeah. they they went back. In. We were in the water. Then we yeah. left. And and I was thinking about this too when I was reading about. I mean, so whales and dolphins also have a nose on their back when you think about the blowhole. So uh. I mean, from from a, from a like from the evolutionary standpoint, it was the case that sort of the nose moved to the front of the face and moved to the back. Nasal migration. It's called <laughs> <laughs> evolutionary. Uh, they are disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're beautiful, but okay. But but nonetheless, but the point being, they went back into the water, which is crazy. Right? Um, <laughs> I mean, it is. Okay, and then. Like they have to breathe, yeah? But they're not really marine in that sense. Like they have to breathe. They have to come up. They're good at breathing, so they can breathe a lot and not breathe. Right? Mm-hmm. Right, okay. So that's the thing. Anyway, <laughs> so they have that. Then, also, they they have this... Oh, yeah, this weird brain. So a thing about being underwater is that you don't smell stuff as well, right? Oh, I believe sure. that. So sure. have, Especially if your nose is on your back. There's massive... Really... <laughs> well, but you don't, yeah, you don't need the olfactory receptors, but maybe you need chemical gradient sensors of some sort. It turns out that they have, like, hugely tiny... Olfactory bulbs, okay. and that like disappeared. And you can I like the phrase start. "hugely tiny." Very yes, very small. They have small olfactory bulbs, and and then so like and then there's this thing where apparently like oh, like the size of the olfactory bulb is somehow I didn't know this correlated with the size of the hippocampus, like in animals. Oh, they what? also kind of have small hippocampuses. Oh god! So they have very so small hip, They have a very small hippocampus, which is a currently hot brain area, right? Um, but they have a very large entorhinal cortex. So, so hippocampus, which is a neighboring associated region. Entorhinal cortex is a piece of cortex associated with hippocampus, typically in terms of like memory and space. Um, we didn't really talk about gyrification. Um, ah, yes. So this is like the amount of foldiness that the cortex has, because if it's very folded, you can fit in more neurons and this sort of thing. And if you look at a rodent brain, it's like pretty sleek and smooth. And then you look at a human brain, it's got all these folds and stuff. So dolphins are so kind of I, similarly folded to humans or more? I think they're very foldy. But it was, okay. it, I know it was said that it was not the case that humans are the most... Foldy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll go with foldy. <laughs> uh, but so, so humans are not the most in yeah. that respect. Yeah. Um, so got to rule that one out. Um, but it, it, it's the case that... Neuron count is related to that foldiness because sure. the, the the point of having folds is to increase the surface area. Yeah, so and if you can just count area, neurons, then, yeah. then you, you know, maybe you don't need to look at foldiness. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe before moving on to a few other related topics, we could talk about uh, how the counting actually occurs because this is sort of an interesting technical challenge, right? So you might say, like, you might have heard in the 90s or something like this, uh, humans have somewhere between 10 and 100 billion neurons. And if you heard it then, it would have been kind of speculative and based well, it's on... It's a huge range. So yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's a large... I mean, it's one order of magnitude. It's not like... It's, but it's a large range. Yeah. And how would you know this? I mean, the answer would be people kind of looked at small parts of brain tissue and counted by hand or, you know, by, by, by eye and, and, you know, really just, just counted the number of neurons in some representative small part of tissue and multiplied it by some factor that they thought was appropriate to get a, a rough estimate, which, you know, had, like, an order of magnitude uncertainty on it. Yeah, so so w- one of the papers we looked at um, wasn't really for its, so much for its, like, scientific findings in particular, but it was a paper just show kind of using three different modern methods um, to count the number of, to estimate the number of neurons um, in that paper in, a, in V1 of chimpanzees, so primary visual cortex of chimpanzees. They used three different methods. Um, to count the number of neurons in a single individual. 
and they concluded that those three methods all sort of agree. The idea is that there are these kind of three, there's these different modern methods, which um, that paper anyway claims are kind of mutually consistent. All of those methods depend on this idea, which you guys know more about than I do, because I am not really a proper biology person, but they all depend on this idea of being able to stain neurons with sort of dyes, fluorescent dyes that mark different things. So in particular... So like just for context, there's a super common dye that's used regularly in labs for like just identifying neuron counts and like stuff like this, which is called DAPI, which marks pretty clearly nucleuses uh, of cells. And since, you know, your average cell is going to have one nucleus, you can just do a one-for-one count of nuclei and that'll tell you how many neurons there are. And as we said before, there are more than just neurons in the brain... There's a, in the human brain, there's about an equal number of neurons and uh, supportive cells, and so you need to stain because you don't want to be counting any old cell. You want to make sure you're counting the number of neurons, or if you want to be counting the glial cells, you want to make sure you're doing that. So they kind of separate the identity of glions and neurons. <laughs> what? Glions and neurons. Yeah, okay. Okay. So... But the point is you can count the number of glia and neurons uh, separately if you can visually identify by morphology, for example, the distinction between them. And then the more modern way of doing that, right, is to use some sort of genetic key thing. Basically, there's something called, I don't know how to pronounce this, how do you pronounce this? Nuan? Nuan. So Nuan is a neuronal nuclear antigen which is used as a biomarker for neurons. Maybe one of you guys can explain what that means. So, I mean, antigens are uh, sort of the way that we stain things is by using antigens, which kind of, uh, we, we've taken a, a trick out of the immune system's toolbook, and basically we've engineered molecules that will latch on to certain things in cells, allowing us to sort of selectively isolate or, or visualized parts of cells. Yeah, because immune systems can kind of produce things that attack foreign things, and so you can grab the stuff that it produces and use it to kind of attack cells of interest and attach a marker to them. And so that's why it's helpful. So using DAPI and this new N, you can basically, instead of having to like just look at kind of crudely um, visualizing tissue, you can... Um, actually kind of mark the neurons and then mark all of the cells, everything that has a nucleus, so you're kind of counting the nuclei, and then you're kind of, you're also able to mark the actual neurons, um, and there are different ways that you can go about counting these things. So the, just a, kind of broad, broadly, the way, the, the method that is used by most people um, is that essentially they, basically they like chop the brain up into pieces, and then they kind of like, homogenize the brain, having having stained with these different things, and then they like put bits of that uh, soup, soup, brain soup, <laughs> under a microscope. And um, count the number of parts that are lit up. Yeah, which is going to be nuclei and then like neurons. And hypothetically, there is a sort of fast way of doing this, something related to flow cytometry, right. where you can just take that soup and shoot it through a system that kind of makes it go through sort of single file and... You know, there's like cells a laser. Single file, right? so the cells go through a single, single file of cells flowing past this laser. Yeah. Through a laser, and the laser kind of counts them as each one passes. Yeah. And um, so this paper that I was mentioning claims, and then there's another method, which is more of an old-fashioned thing, where you take little samples of brain, 
from kind of throughout the brain in a sort of random way. Um, and then you, again, this is kind of very manual counting of the number of neurons in like layers. And then you use some methods to estimate the number of neurons in a, in a, in a volume uh, by counting the number of neurons you see in a, in a layer. And then you use estimation to get, get the number of neurons throughout the brain by considering the counts you got from your little samples throughout the brain. Um, so this paper claims all three of those methods give pretty consistent results. Yeah, so the, I mean, it's obviously all a lot of estimation from whatever sample size you want to take. And then if you're interested in how things differ across brain areas, then, you know, you have to keep your chunks of brain separate and count them separately uh, to be able to compare. Right, so at the beginning there'll be some stage where you're kind of carefully cutting the brain into large pieces, separating the brain areas. Cool, so that's kind of a bit of how the counting is actually done to get these, these various estimates. Yeah, I mean, it is it's laborious, right? So she, she talks yeah. about how, like, she hires undergrads, like many, many undergrads, to and sit there, them. pays them money to sit there and, like, count. count cells. And so this is why we don't necessarily have a lot of great numbers for, like, every kind of species. It's It takes too long to... Yeah, it's pretty non-trivial. We've been getting at these this issue, which kind of the upshot of it is we sort of have a feeling now that maybe it's not just neuron count, maybe it's neuron count or size or something like this in some specific regions relative to other regions or things like this. And so there's also this other paper about, uh, you know, I guess saucily titled, Is Bigger Always Better? And in this paper, they try to relate measures of general cognitive ability to surface area and cortical thickness. So we're going from across species differences to within a species. Within humans. Which, yeah, within humans. A study is done in humans. And so that can be like pretty different as a, a way to compare things, but then it turns out a lot of the basic concepts still hold. Like in, within humans, brain mass scales with body mass. Um, so if you have a bigger body, you'll probably have a bigger brain. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're like more intelligent. You just kind of need a bigger brain to control your bigger body. And so, like between males and females, males on average have bigger brains, but are they on average have bigger bodies? Um, yeah. So, but this study um, is trying to kind of delve a little bit deeper, rather than just overall brain size or overall measures of, of neurons and this kind of thing. It's actually looking at the distribution across different brain areas. And they're kind of correlating that with something that they call general cognitive abilities, which is supposed to kind of be like IQ. It's technically um, yeah, so in this study. There's a strong correlation between IQ and this general cognitive ability uh, test, which is basically given by uh, the armed forces, uh, because the subjects here are all at some point or another associated with armed forces, though not everyone is a combatant. Yeah. So that's the outcome that they're kind of measuring. And then they use these two different measures of interesting brain metrics, which are the, the surface area and the thickness, the cortical thickness. Which cortical thickness intuitively we would think would have something to do with cell counts. Probably. Yeah. It's kind of, so it's, this As is like. As surface area. Both, both of those would have something to do with cell counts. And right? this is related to the, the gray matter, basically, not the, the wiring between areas, but the actual thickness and air and surface area of kind of the brain areas themselves. And so, you know, one of the kind of ways that this analysis, you know, leads to thinking is that there are stronger correlations in certain brain regions with intelligence relative to other brain regions. 
So it's not just about the overall size of the brain necessarily. A, a big factor seems to be about where locally the brain is larger. So like is, is the frontal cortex or prefrontal cortex larger or is a different area larger and intelligence is positively correlated with certain areas relative to others. And these two measures actually tend to have an inverse relationship um, if you look across different areas. So basically, if there's a lot of surface area in a brain region, then the thickness, the cortical thickness of that region tends to be smaller. And this is kind of intuitively, you know, if you think of kind of stretching something out, it gets wider, but it also gets thinner. So, so. it's like a fabric. Basically, if you think of like the surface of the brain maybe as a fabric or something like that. Well, like, or like silly putty because it has to get thinner sure, okay. as you stretch it. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Maybe I was thinking fabric does too. Like, <laughs> I don't know, like felt, you know. Felt does. Crazy fabric. <laughs> maybe spandex a little yeah. bit, or, but or even like, that. You know, like Joshua a, is almost exclusively spandex. <laughs> 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 but like a, or, or, you know, like a, a, a knit kind of thing. You know, I guess like, push it together. Like a term, it's a terrible one. Okay. Okay. Silly putty is a better example. Clearly we should use Play-Doh. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Sorry well, you know, you down there. <laughs> well, okay. I, I think that, I mean, the brain is like a, has, you know, like extracellular structure. I don't know. I was just saying it kind of like felt. But okay. Fine. For you, the brain is felt. Okay. Um, so yeah, so the, as you stretch it, it gets thinner. Um, and so basically what they were looking for is uh, which brain regions correlate with uh, this intelligence measure in terms of their thickness or their surface area, like uh, being needed for intelligence is kind of the, the test that they're getting at. And so they find that the more frontal areas, the prefrontal, lateral, temporal, and inferior parietal cortices, those areas, if they have more surface area, meaning that they're usually uh, thinner, that correlates positively with this intelligence metric. And then alternatively, you could have more surface area and thinner cortex kind of in the back of the brain, which are usually more so that the back of the brain is usually more associated with sensory processing, like the direct processing of sensory inputs. And so if you have more surface area there, then that's correlated with the lower scores on this intelligence test. But I was wondering, so this intelligence test is things like, you know, verbal ability and arithmetic and these things, which like obviously I understand why that's part of an intelligence test, but do the people who have more surface area in sensory cortices, are they better at kind of really pure sensory processing? Can they like respond to tones faster or something? I don't know. That would be interesting to see. Uh, I mean, uh, this is getting far enough afield that I don't have like a, a reference offhand, but I have seen work that's suggested that intelligence is correlated with like certain sensory discrimination kinds of tasks. You're saying that performance on like really simple perceptual discrimination tasks is supposed to correlate with general intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's just the, the case that kind of any response to an input is going to need to pass through the frontal regions. And so that's maybe the bottleneck for most people is how good your frontal cortex is. Or do you taking a written test of some sort requires, you know, sort of more, some frontal area. Sure, yeah, if it's written, that might, that seems totally plausible. Another thing is that, um, we were talking earlier about gross connectivity. You can do things like, you can do um, diffusion tensor imaging to kind of look at... Uh, the white matter. Yeah. White matter tracts between areas, the volume of those and so on. And people make claims about, you know, 
how connected different brain areas are being like important in determining intelligence by looking at individual similar to this right like individual humans and variability and something like an IQ test or something like that. Mm-hmm. yeah there's all these things yeah there's there's that and there's also like more uh, you can look in more kind of fine-grained ways about smaller brain regions and how their size is different so things like connectivity and finer grain discrimination of brain areas I mean, these things are kind of correlated with certain diseases or they differ across genders on average or like, yeah, there's a lot, a lot to look at. As we said, we don't really know what measure we should be thinking about. Um, the, the gyrification thing, actually, this paper says is a function of the cortical expansion. So this process of like the cortex spreading out like silly putty or felt. Um, basically as it spreads out and thins, it starts to like push up against itself and the thinner the cortex, then the kind of easier it is to fold is how they describe it. Especially given a constraint. Um, I mean, this is all assuming the skull is not growing, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a bunch about this, uh, how the different size of different regions and different size across animals may play into intelligence. Maybe briefly we, we talk about, uh, a little bit about what motivates intelligence uh, in terms of evolutionary factors. And specifically, we've been looking at this in the context of dolphins. So one of the dominant theories for the evolution of intelligence generally in higher mammals has to do with social intelligence. Um, And so a bunch of people in the ethology literature, for example, uh, Seyfarth and Cheney, they talk about the social cognition as sort of a, a, a motivating evolutionary factor for the growth of intelligence broadly. Um, and so in dolphins, it turns out that they have lots of sort of interesting behaviors, many of them social, uh, that, that could motivate why they have, why, why they need intelligence. Yeah, like the ability to keep track of complicated social hierarchies requires a fairly advanced brain. I mean, the, the way that we're saying it seems a little backwards of evolution. I guess the idea would be that you, someone, some dolphin had a slightly bigger brain and could keep track of more things, and they're the ones that stuck around. Sure. Um, but yeah, yeah or, even, or even that sort of gradually, as the environment in which an animal is living gets more complicated, which is, it could be the environment, it could be how they hunt, how they avoid predators, mm-hmm. and also how they interact with conspecifics, mm-hmm. other, other you know, animals of the same species. As, as all of that gets more complicated, there's a greater demand on them in terms of intelligence. Mm-hmm. And Social intelligence is a part of that, but just so like as they get into these complex situations that involve other animals and a rich environment, they need to develop intelligence or they won't be the ones to survive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people are, are big on the social competition hypothesis as being an explanation for, you know, humans or apes, even elephants potentially, and dolphins and whales. Um, in all of these cases, there seems to be a social factor that could be implicated yeah. as part of it. The idea being that, you know, according to all of the things we've talked about so far, what are the what are the weird, crazy animals, right, that have, like, big brains, elephants, dolphins and certain whales, and then humans and primates. And those all, the claim is that those are all, those animals are all kind of unusually social as well. Are sperm whales social? Because they have large brains too, don't they? Kind of? Maybe. Yes. So uh, they claim sperm whales. I mean, Our social? In, the, in the context of the social competition hypothesis, they, they mention sperm whales. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's, whales are also kind of fascinating that way. They have these weird... Some, these, there's like a sense in which we don't really know what they do, which I think is crazy. Like they <laughs> They're too big. Super to... large distances. Yeah. 
And they're then, just operating on a totally different scale yeah, from us. I mean, like, there are blue whales that literally inhabit the whole planet, which is kind of nuts. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I went to a museum exhibit about whales, and I crawled inside a model of a blue whale heart. That's yeah. how big they are. You could live inside it. Yeah. Comfortably. Oh, yeah. More, it's like New York size, New York bars. <laughs> <Like a> New <laughs> size, New York I would happily live in a blue whale heart in New York. How many blue whale hearts? <laughs> um, so the the social uh, evolution idea is kind of the the answer to the why question. Insofar as evolution is allowed to answer why questions, but then there's like the how, like how are we able to support, especially as humans not living in in water, how are we able to support? Uh, all like the energy that our brain takes because it takes up, I think the numbers are like 20% of your body's energy, even though it's 2% of the mass or something like that. So um, one of the theories that's put forth is the fact that we learn to cook food, then we could get a lot more energy out of the food. And so we are allowed to have this really expensive brain that we've evolved. Right. And this, is, this has been tested both in terms of preferences, right? And in terms of nutrition gain, I, I was actually surprised by this. At some point I saw, I've seen articles at various points suggesting both that, even animals who haven't eaten cooked food prefer the flavor of cooked, or the taste of cooked food. Wow. That's uh, weird. So <laughs> it's like, it was like monkeys, if given the option to have like a cooked potato or a raw potato, yeah. preferred a cooked potato. I love that. this great image of like a chimpanzee sitting down at like a nice table, like a nice like serious like French, you know, like a, <laughs> like a nice tablecloth, like a nice cutlery. Ordering a... Nice steak, you know, <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think that this is, this is... It's interesting that you would have, like, a preference for that that's somewhat innate, maybe. And then the other related factor uh, is that I think someone someone's done studies in terms of digestibility, suggesting that cooked food is more digestible. Oh, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's, that's clear. Right? That's clear. It's, I mean, it should be clear to some extent. But so the idea is, like, the chimpanzee sits down at the restaurant and has the steak and he's like, damn, this is going to be really digestible. Well, their taste sensors like are well-tuned to what is digestible, yeah, maybe, okay. or something like you that. You are yeah. the one who brought in the French restaurant. Yeah. No, I That's believe the study was conducted in <laughs> a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so so there's there's this cooked food thing. Uh, but, but back to social alliances for, for, for one more moment. I mean, they were one of the things that they were saying was a signature of uh, complex social dynamics uh, were nested alliances, yeah. which I just thought was an interesting concept that reminded me of uh, maybe The Walking Dead or something, <laughs> right? Humans and, and other animals, let's say dolphins or chimpanzees, may have evolved where there are groups. And so, like, there's group A and group B that might be in conflict, and but inside those, those are groups of, of, of individuals that are, are sort of allies with each other. And then there are the, the nested alliances or nested you know, hierarchy comes up from comes from there being groups of groups that are in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, this also sounds like, you know, sort of politics or something like this, like international politics. But uh, so apparently dolphins and chimpanzees have some signatures of these kind of nested alliances. These hierarchies that yeah. get complicated and require a fancy this brain. This guy, was it? Richard Connor from University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth has this paper that we're talking about now, right now that uh, he's looking at bottlenose dolphins in Shark Bay, Australia um, who, I'll just quote, uh, live in a large unbounded society with efficient fusion grouping pattern. Um, Potential cognitive demands include the need to develop social strategies involving the recognition of a large number of individuals and their relationship with others. So I actually didn't know anything about this in dolphins. An interesting thing is that, I, I, as far as I understand, 
the idea is that there are different societies of like these different of the same kinds of dolphins or very similar kinds of dolphins which actually can have very different they can have very different social structures so if they didn't address this in this paper but an interesting thing would be to look at like this is very detailed in a way but to look at kind of differences in brains between very related animals say dolph- particular kind of dolphins that live in socially different settings hmm. um They've lived in socially different settings long enough for evolution to have an impact, or these it's are just clear, different though. groups. Essentially, of... cultural kinds of. Things. Yeah, <clears throat> but in any case, the claim is that basically, well, one of the claims that he makes is about this kind of levels of alliance. So the idea would be that males, uh, small groups of males, two to three, will form these what he calls first order alliances to quote aid the formation and maintenance of consortships um, with usually one female. Um, so you have these groups, small groups, he calls first order alliances. But then, and this is the kind of hierarchical part, like you'll also observe cooperation between first order alliances. So between these small groups of males, you'll see cooperation between many of these small groups to actually kind of, as he says, steal females from other alliances or correspondingly kind of protect um, each other's interests by kind of stopping other small first order alliances from stealing the females that they're kind of consorting with. Um, and those kind of second-order alliances, which are these alliances of first-order alliances, can consist of sort of four to 14 members, they claim. This is all based on these kind of really cool studies where they get to just, like, hang out in this bay in Australia for years, just, like, going on boats and videotaping dolphins. That sounds pretty good. Um, <laughs> so... Um, and then the further claim is, and this is kind of less well nailed down, but that there's actually these very grand sort of social interactions between these second order alliances. So um, social interactions on the scales of like scale of like large, largish kind of groups, twenty-ish animals sort of competing against each other. Things like you know, again, I, I didn't read it in super high resolution, but sort of large groups competing with each other and other groups kind of observing and maybe expressing preference for one group of these kind of strength. Um, so yeah, so some kind of brief... Uh, I mean, and, and some, to me, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm being naive, but given what appeals to people in television or even, like, at least the stereotypes about the dynamics in high school, it, it does just seem to me that this is, like, part of people's... Like, what, what, what it does seem like a big part of human... Cognitive processing. Yeah. Does what you spend your brain power on. Yeah, thinking about modeling others. And well, and the, and the social, social strategies and social alliances and like levels of friendship and cooperation and conflict. I mean, these factors do seem to be a lot of what humans think about. Uh, aside from you know, sort of the, the the very basic things like raw sensory processing. I mean, obviously, you have to know how to move your arms and like see things, but beyond that. It seems like a lot of our, our effort goes into sort of social modeling. I agree. So, I, I mean, we've actually spanned many levels here talking about sort of brain size and maybe what motivates, evolutionarily motivates intelli- the, the, the need for intelligence. Uh, and I, get, I guess we don't, we haven't talked too much from the neuroscience standpoint about the ties between brain size and intelligence, except for in this one paper that talked about the, the local regions. But, yeah. I mean, that is really like probably the least well understood part. I would say that um, from, you know, what's emerged from building artificial neural networks, um, it's reasonable to think that the number of neurons is important. I don't think that that's kind of an absurd thing. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly important, right? I mean, there's, there's just, a, I mean, as far as 
it appears there seems to be such enormous diversity in terms of different animals uh, having sort of different ecological niches that they're able to handle well due to sort of specialization in their, their brains and their behaviors. I mean, this, this kind of stuff gets to sort of the heart of classical neuroscience, but it is also the case that at this time, it, we really, where we're deficient as a field, I think, is in linking specific intelligent functions to specific brain regions or, you know, specific diversification. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, on a, on a crude level, we can do this. We, like, we know, like, vision is done by this part of the brain, roughly, and, and we can kind of say things. But in terms of, like, the higher level stuff, we don't know, like, what brain regions or what details of what brain regions support social modeling or things like that. And those are interesting questions, I think, yeah. moving forward for, for, the, for the neuroscience field. Um, did you know, like, I was looking around, it turns out there are neural recordings from dolphins, like actual single cellular recordings from dolphins done in Russia. You know, but you know. <laughs> I assume they're not awake behaving dolphins. They're, they're probably like I think they have awake dolphins, but they're that presumably like suspended in some area. Where yeah, they can't be moving. Possibly paralyzed. I don't remember. Anyway, the point is there are single cell recordings. So there's people that actually like they mapped like sensory cortex and all this that they yeah. know that like auditory cortex is in a totally different place to visual cortex. Visual cortex is much smaller yeah. in dolphins than in in primates, right? Auditory cortex is huge. They neighbor each other, so there's probably some kind of continuum between them, which is diff very different to in mammals or to cortex and visual cortex. So, well, they're terrestrial mammals. Yeah, yeah. terrestrial mammals, sorry. Cool. Anyway. All right. Awesome. Um, okay, I think we can wrap up then. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks. Thanks.